the Gospel of Luke. And you might remember uh, we've been working through this rich gospel for the last 18 months, and we're coming to the end, into the home stretch through the month of May. And uh, today um, we'll be looking and exploring in Luke chapter uh, 22 through the beginning of Luke chapter 23. But I thought it would be helpful uh, before we do that. Um, just to go way back to Luke chapter 1, because some of you weren't here, some of you don't remember, and I need, I need reminder of this, okay, that the gospel of Luke was written for a Gentile audience, and it stresses the universal scope of salvation. Salvation wasn't specifically going to be for the Jews any longer, and Luke is both a physician and a historian who, as a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, he also wrote Acts as the second half of this two-port volume directed at who? Well, you might remember, you go back to Luke 1, it was Theophilus. So he's writing this two-port volume about the life of Christ and then the early church, and he focuses on the redemptive messianic mission of the Son of Man. That little title for who Jesus was as the Son of Man pops up all throughout the Gospel of Luke. And the big idea or the theme is that the Son of Man extends salvation to all people. And just as a, as a highlight, as we look towards the summer, the very first book after the Gospel of Luke this summer in June will be Jonah. And here we're going to see God's heart for a wayward people. And even a missionary who didn't want to go there, right? So you come back this summer, and that's what we'll be looking at. And it goes along the same theme. The key verse is Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And throughout this gospel over the last 18 months, we've seen that Jesus comes to proclaim the fact that he was the Messiah he had come as the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, and that he was here to bring salvation. Last week, as we looked at Luke 22, 54 to 62, we saw Peter's denial. Okay, We're through the Passion Week. We're getting towards the end. And that Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him in the midst of being asked who Jesus was and whether or not he was affiliated with him. And his denial was by omission. He hid, if you'd remember. It was by commission because he denied who Jesus was. He even cursed those who were accusing him of being a follower of Jesus. And then in that confirmation, when Jesus came out, from the high priest's house, and he looked through that corner of the house, and he looked right into Peter's eyes. There was that confirmation, and immediately the rooster crowed. All of that led to what? To his repentance. That theme that we saw last week was failure does not have to define us if we respond to God's mercy, which leads to repentance. There is never a failure that is so great that puts you too far from God's grace. Oh, that we would grasp that and hold on to that because all of us in this room have one thing in common in our humanity, and that is we are given to failure. We're given to sin. We're not sinners because we sin. It's in our nature to sin. And so regardless of where we're at on that scale of sanctification, if we're in Christ, we will fail. 
and we will fail miserably. And so we hold on to this truth that this sinfulness, the failure, it doesn't need to define us. It doesn't need to grip our souls to the point of despair. And I'm sure there is someone here that is feeling absolutely out of sorts spiritually because you feel like, I've just blown it again. Guess what? You're not alone. The person to your left, the person to your right, the person in back of you, perhaps the person in front of you, they feel the same exact way. And we preach the gospel to ourselves first because we need it. I need it. That's the hope that we have in all of the songs that we just got through singing about the work of Christ. We don't despair And it doesn't define us because we have this opportunity to what? To repent. If we're outside of Christ to salvation, if we're in Christ to restoration. That's just the background. So look at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63. We're working our way. We've gone from Peter's denial of Jesus, and now we're entering this phase of his trials. Verse 63 says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, Make sure you don't miss this. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. That was it. That's all they needed to hear. Chapter 23. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Verse 4, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, you can sneak a peek in your own text in verse 6, okay? And we'll get to this next week. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. That was important because Pilate was was in a bind here. Once he discovered that Jesus was a Galilean, he said, this is outside my jurisdiction. I'm off the hook. I can find someone else to pass judgment on this man because this seems like a big mess to me. Today, the title of the message is this, No Christ, No Truth, No Justice. No Christ, No Truth, No Justice. If you want to take something in particular away, here's the big idea 
stubborn, and what I mean by that, sinful rejection of the claims of Christ lead to brutal mistreatment, distortion of truth, and sham justice or trials. Now, let me say something just really quick so you don't miss this, okay? Verses 66 to 71, that's where the claims of Christ are. So when I say that the sinful rejection of who Christ said he was, it was right there. When they ask him who he was, and he says, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you who I am, you're not going to answer. And then he says in verse 69, what? But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then they ask him, are you the Son of God? And he says, what? You say that I am. Now, at first reading or blush, you can run right over that. But in verse 69 we might lose in English what was not lost on the Sanhedrin of the religious leaders. When Jesus said, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God, it's a very unique Greek phrase in the original. And there was an extension of the very power of God extended in and through the person of Christ. That's what he was claiming to have. And you can go back to texts like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, when the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being the radiance of the glory of God, the one that sits at the right hand of the power of God. That's what Jesus was saying to the religious leaders, and they got it. Because they said immediately, what? What further testimony do we need? We know he's a blasphemer. So there's the big idea. John 14, verse 6, you remember this? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There is this link, and it's a Trinitarian link between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And we know that in coordination with the Holy Spirit, we have what we worship as the Trinity. You cannot take anything away from Jesus as God and have the gospel. Jesus said it in John 14. He says it again to the religious leaders. Who do you say that I am? I am God. You're right. It was horribly offensive. But if there is no Christ as God, then there is no truth. And ultimately, there is no justice. The rest is just a facade. Wicked hearts don't want to objectively evaluate the claims of Jesus. And I think it's important that we get it out of our heads that mankind has some type of moral neutrality where if they just presented with sufficient information and proof, they would embrace Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. Wicked hearts are blind and invested in their own self-interest, which doesn't include bowing their knee to the authority of their creator. Yet, our hearts are wicked as well and inclined towards independence rather than submission to God. And can I just say something as an aside, okay? When you wed political and religious power to the claims of Christ and the agendas that are contained in those, what you get is a toxic cocktail which always leads to deadly results. 
the religious leaders here, the Sanhedrin, okay, which was a combination of all the different religious leaders, they didn't work well with the Romans, but they saw Jesus as a mix. And so they come together and they say, we need to get rid of this guy. But when you take a religious agenda with a political agenda and you try to mix it with Christianity, it does not work. I grew up in my own home country among the so-called moral majority. Looking back, we can say now that was a complete train wreck. You cannot mix the two. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will bow to no man, no system, no earthly king, no religious leader. So let's look at just in basically three different ways, okay, that Jesus is going to... Um, that Luke's describing this section of scripture. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus faces the thugs. This is 63 to 65. Then Jesus faces the religious council in verses 66 to 71. And then Jesus faces Pilate in the beginning of chapter 23. Um, And we're going to find that Jesus changes everything, even the terrible things. And make no mistake about it, of course, this is terrible. Jesus being put on trial a man who has committed no sin. He is the essence of holiness. There was no greater injustice committed in the history of the world than to put Jesus Christ on trial. But in verses 63 to 65, Jesus faces these thugs and we see that he was verbally and physically abused in Verse 63, it says the men were holding Jesus in custody and they were mocking him and beating him. They were not only beating him, they were mocking him because of his prophetic ministry. It says they blindfolded him. They were asking him, hey, Jesus, prophesy, tell the future. Who's the one that just hit you? They were making fun of Jesus and his reputation as a prophet. And if that wasn't enough, they began to blaspheme him. They were saying things against who he claimed to be. The word there just doesn't only relate to religious connotations, but it's a general irreverence towards God. It includes any kind of speech that that denigrates, defames, reviles, disrespects, or slanders. And I'm sure it was foul. So they beat him. They mocked him. They blasphemed him. One interesting note here is that Luke and his gospel omits the fact that two informal trials had already taken place that were held during the night, which was completely illegal. If you go back to Matthew, John chapter 18 and 19, Mark chapter 14, uh, Matthew chapter 22, you're going to find that there were two previous trials. And in fact, in totality, there were six trials, three by the religious leaders of the Jews, Three by both the Romans and the Jewish representatives politically. Six trials in all. The sentence of death couldn't be passed at night. And so here we find Jesus, as the sun comes up, this next trial, so to speak, is held. Why? Well, because only during the daylight... And supposedly not on a holiday could, could a criminal be condemned. He could only be condemned by, by the Romans. And the religious leaders knew that. In the meantime, the guards who G- took Jesus and they 
ridiculed him. They made fun of him. They blasphemed him. When they were finished with him, then we moved to the religious councils that Jesus faced the Sanhedrin. Again, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all together, verses 66 to 71, staging a what we believe is a third trial that Luke records here. It says that when it was day, they came together, assembled both the chief priests and scribes. They led him away to the council chamber saying, what? What were they trying to determine? They wanted to hear it for themselves. Is he going to identify himself as the Messiah? That was the issue. One side note, okay? Um, uh, Who was it that was the high priest at the time? It was Caiaphas. But in John 15, we find that the idea of the trial was actually Annas. Now, Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. What's interesting is that Annas was the real power broker in the Sanhedrin. He'd actually run afoul with the Roman government and been replaced by Caiaphas. So Annas is the one that had been in power since 6 AD. In 15 AD, so about 15 years previous, the Romans had replaced him. Now, why they replaced him with his son-in-law, I have no idea. But most people believe, at least Philo, the historian, said that Annas and Caiaphas, they actually lived in this massive house right next to the temple. So if you go back when Peter's denial, when when Jesus comes out of that first meeting and sees Peter, they were coming out of Annas and Caiaphas' house. And Philo says it was a massive dwelling. He estimated it to be 25,000 square feet right next to the temple. Now think about that. How in the world would a priest get all of the resources to live in this palatial estate? Well, he was on the take. And I was just reminded once again that any religious system, any man-made system of any kind always tilts towards corruption. Believe it or not, friends, No culture, no people, no country has the corner on the market on corruption. Don't get discouraged by it. Don't get down in the mouth and feel like, I just want to quit. If I have to face one more sense of injustice. Injustice is to feel angry and upset about injustice is good. But to get discouraged to the point that you'd quit, that's not seeing the big picture. Every system in the history of man always tilt toward the depravity of man. Annas and Caiaphas were of the same family. They were all about themselves. They liked their life. They liked their big house. They liked the good position they had as religious leaders. And Jesus was challenging that. And let me tell you, Jesus is no different today. He challenges authority whether that be political authority, social authority, religious authority, because everybody bows at his feet. God's given him a name that is above every name, right? That's, that's Paul's admonition in Philippians, that at his name, every man will bow now or at some time in the future. When he's questioned and they ask him, Are you the Christ? 
And then in verse 69, he says, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What's awesome about this is Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament and he takes two verses from Daniel chapter seven and Psalm 110.1. Daniel chapter seven, verse 17, it says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Here is the prophecy of Jesus, the son of man, alongside the ancient of days. And Daniel says, he's the one who's coming. And then in Psalm 110.1, the psalmist says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now I don't have time to go back and read that because when the psalmist says, the Lord says to my Lord, it's a play on words. It's Jehovah saying to Adonai, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's a prophecy about Jesus coming. Jesus is Adonai. God the Father is Jehovah. That sacred word that the priests and the, and the, and the scribes wouldn't even write down. And the psalmist says, I saw them. And they were there. And it's just a reflection of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus, in answering his accusers, he draws upon these Old Testament texts, which the author of Hebrews is going to reflect back on, and says, I am the very power of God. It's clear. This is who Jesus is. What's interesting is that the Sanhedrin, they thought they were looking for the Messiah. And when the Messiah was sitting right in front of them, they denied him. So Jesus is turning the tables and while they thought they were sitting in judgment of him, he lets them know that really he's sitting in judgment of them and there will come a time where he will be the one who will judge them. Even as Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost that it was Jesus whom they crucified in Acts chapter two, and it was God who raised him to his right hand where he was installed on David's throne as Lord and Savior. Jesus is saying that there will be a Calvary to the Sanhedrin. There will be a resurrection. There will be an ascension. There will be a coronation. And then someday that he would return and be the righteous judge. So Jesus confirms his messiahship and his deity in the strongest terms possible. He would be the very power of God who would take his place next to his father and that he would come back in glory one day to judge the nations. It's just, what's amazing is not only Jesus' statement, what's amazing is the recklessness and relentlessness of these people who hated Christ so much. They would not be deterred from their goal. There would be nothing that would exterminate their hatred, and it was shown in their injustice and in their abuse towards Christ. Remember, Jesus had healed the servant just hours before, taken an ear that was cut off and put it back on his face. And despite seeing that, 
It didn't matter. Now here's the warning to us. As individuals, apart from Christ, who are given to a depraved mind and sinfulness, apart from the grace of God, we love our sin. They love their power. They love their position. And it would cause them to do something that was so despicable that most of us would say, I would never do that. And what I would simply say is, I'm very capable of that. Apart from God intervening in my life and in my heart, I'm capable of anything. There is, there is no amount of wickedness, darkness, and sinfulness that I'm not capable of, and neither are you. So it's only when the gospel reaches out and draws us back from that darkness. That's why when we rub into the kind of vile wickedness that takes place in a relatively dark culture, sometimes we recoil, and if we're not careful, we look at those on the other side and we say, look at them, and we become that Jonah that says they deserve God's judgment. Instead of saying, only by the grace of God would I be there too. So Jesus faces the thugs and then he faces the religious leaders. And for them, the case was closed. They said, what further need do we need to this testimony? Jesus wasn't being evasive, by the way. He's simply saying, this is how it is. Now Jesus is gonna face Pilate you can just look at verse chapter 23. The whole company arose and brought him before Pilate. All you need to know about him, and we'll talk more later, is that he, he was designated by the Roman emperor himself to administrate and keep everything in order. Now, what you also need to know is this was not a plush job. People were sent to Palestine most of the time because they had done something wrong. Sometimes they were sent there just to keep order. So this, this was not the sharpest tack in the box, okay? So here was Pilate. He's just trying to keep order. There's insurrection all around. The religious leaders, they bring Jesus in, who by this time, he looks horrible. They begin to accuse him in verse two, and they say what? That he, did they say that he claims to be the son of God? No, because they knew that Pilate wouldn't care. So they say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, not the king, a king, because they're trying to play to the side of Pilate that could have no other authority but Caesar himself. Now, what's interesting is if you think back in church history, to the Apostles' Creed, to the Nicene Creed, that may not mean anything to any of you, but if you remember in a tradition that, that, that quotes those, perhaps in a Sunday service, you'll remember that Pilate is held responsible. Why? Well, because he is the civil authority delegated by the Romans, yes, but ultimately the early church fathers said that in God's providence, he establishes kings and thrones and dominions to do his will. And so they said, yeah, Pilate was the one responsible for declaring Jesus as a criminal 
And it was Pilate who was responsible as the one who would send Jesus to the cross. The religious leaders played to Pilate's social sense of social stability and political favor. And we know that was all made up. But ultimately, this was God's plan. And nothing has changed in the 21st century. Christ changes everything because the kingdom demands absolute allegiance to him above all other authority. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but what? But also in the one to come. Jesus was the son of God. He made that clear to the religious leaders. He was the king of kings. He says as much to Pilate. And even Pilate, after listening to Jesus answer him in verse 3, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply says, you have said so. Pilate responds and says what? I find no guilt in this man. But the religious leaders, they were urgent. Okay, that word there has the idea of they wouldn't be deterred. And they said he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Now next week, we're going to look at what Pilate's answer was. And for most of us, you remember that he would send Jesus to his somewhat of an enemy up to this point, Herod. But what's the application for us? Well, the application that Jesus changes everything even in the terrible things. Now listen to this. God's good providence took Jesus to the guards, to the thugs. He took him to the religious leaders. He took him to Pilate, to Herod, and ultimately to the cross. God's sovereign plan is not interrupted by suffering. It's just the fact that who Jesus is as the Son of God changes everything. In fact, we would say it was his definitive plan. God's redemptive work in the gospel was accomplished through the means of suffering, injustice, and death because that was what the plan was. And Jesus does change everything even in the midst of this horrible, horrible situation. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in the body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There's the big theological truth to hang on to. Our salvation was accomplished there on the cross, not by anything that we would do. How does it apply to us? Well, Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been what? Crucified to me and I to the world. Paul was saying the world doesn't matter anymore. Everything that the world has to offer, I don't need it. Now that should have very, very practical applications for many of us in this room. Because for many... You've left family and relatives and home and careers and financial security now and in the future so that you can hold out Christ in a foreign land. For some of you who this is your home, perhaps following Christ has cost you everything. 
your position in your family, a good job, hope for the future. Jesus changes everything because Paul says, I don't identify what the world says is important. What do I identify with? The cross of Christ. And if I identify with cross and Christ's work there, there's nothing that the world can bring that really matters. Octavius Winslow, um, what a great name. One of those good old dead guys from the 17th century said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the father for love. And who was the object of that love? If you're in Christ, it's you and it's me. And the way that we apply that to us, well, it says whatever Jesus calls me to in this life, he's got it. He's already been there. And, and what an opportunity, what a privilege. I love how John Piper, in his book called Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, The Cost of Bringing the Gospel of the Nations, if you've never read that, I encourage you to. It's a simple read. Take you an afternoon, tops. He says, I want you to see persecution and opposition and slander and misunderstanding and disappointment and self-recrimination and weakness and danger as the normal portion of faithful ministry. Now, Piper was talking about in the life of William Tyndale, Adonai Judson, John Patton. But it all should, should be the norm for us. Why? Because that's the Father's plan. Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross. He faced the thugs. He faced the religious leaders. He faced Pilate. We'll find next week that he faced Herod because his mind was set towards accomplishing your salvation and my salvation. We're going to sing the last song, In Christ Alone. I can't think of a better way to end the service. Um, I'm going to pray, and then they're going to sing, and then you're going to be dismissed. And my hope is that you'll go out and think about these things, read next week's text, consider the application of not only Jesus' trials, but his ultimate death and, of course, his resurrection and what it means for you. Father, thank you for gathering us together as we sing this last song. I pray that we would hold on to the great and rich truth that it's in Christ and in Christ alone that we look. We find in Christ our hope. We find our contentment and ultimately our joy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that Christ accomplished once and for all for all of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.